Okay, Man Unreal. My name is Arthur. I am joined, as always, by Isaac. And we welcome you to the second episode of our special countdown to No Time to Die, which we are calling 007 and Counting. Uh, we are counting down to Eon's 25th James Bond film with seven special episodes outside of our regular main show. Uh, this episode, uh, Man Unreal 007 and Counting, is called The Spy who looks nothing like me, Bond, <laughs> <laughs> James Bond, from the black perspective. Mm. Um, this is actually an important show to do because, you know, we wanted to take an inward look and really be honest about the complexities uh, and the conflicts of rooting for a character who, in many ways, uh, represents the ultimate, the pinnacle, even, in white privilege and white male fantasy. Um, so, you know, Isaac, when did when did you start to um dabble in white male fantasy? Become a Bond fan. <laughs> when did I try my hand in white male fantasy? Right, right, right. But you know, when did you become a Bond fan? Um, I don't think I've ever asked you. And when did you realize that he represented mm-hmm. um uh you know, the ultimate really in white male privilege? You know, for, for me it was um I became aware because I I think Bond is one of those, you know, iconic type cultural things that you you're aware of before, you know, you're aware of it. You know, so it's like, I guess I had heard, you know, 007 and James Bond when I was very, very, very small. The first time I can remember, excuse me, becoming aware of it was um, for your eyes only. And for your eyes Mm -hmm. only came out in 81. So I didn't see it in the theater. I was like, you know, five, I was like six or seven years old. So I didn't see it in the Mm -hmm. theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember a couple years later, we got HBO and I remember it being on HBO like a lot, like it would just, you yeah. know, you, it would just constantly be on HBO. And so I think that was like the first James Bond film that I either saw in its entirety or I at least got mm-hmm. glimpses of, cause again, I was still very young. Um, but then, and I, I think, you know, after that you got, uh, uh, Octopussy and you got um, A View to a Kill and those are the last two in uh, the Roger Moore run but for me at that point in time you know Roger Moore was James Bond you know it right. wasn't that was that was I was I, I don't even think I was aware of you know Sean Connery or you know Lazenby um, it was Roger Moore and mm-hmm. so in 87 when this new movie comes out, Living Daylights, and the the big news is that, you know, or 86 even when they announced it, that Roger Moore is retiring and there's going to be a new James Bond. That's when a light bulb went off over my head. And I was like, wait a minute, there's more than one James Bond. What's this going on? Mm-hmm. You know, and I, be, I started paying attention, basically. I started paying attention to James Bond at that point. And I think Living Daylights may have been the first movie, you know, the first Bond film I saw in the theaters. Um, and that's when my interest was really peculiar you know, for James Bond. And mm-hmm. then after that, of course, you know, a couple of years later when you get, you know, the fact that uh, Pierce Brosnan, who was not really Pierce Brosnan at that point, he was Remington Steele. <clears throat> That's how we all right. knew him. When we right. found out, okay, Remington, Remington Steele is going to take over the role. I was very interested. So I kind of grew up on the early, the Brosnan films, you know, the kind of the um, Timothy Dalton, late Timothy Dalton, the two Timothy, Timothy Daltons, and then the Brosnan films. So that's when I think I became a fan, you know, um, of Bond. But there's a caveat to this story. And the caveat is that around that time of the, the late Brosnan run, you're talking, you know, uh, probably 
tomorrow never dies. Maybe, maybe world is not enough. Um, was also the kind of social awakening, social consciousness awakening within me. I was coming of age, you know, so to mm-hmm. speak, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, I was deep into not just hip hop, but, you know, the political side of hip hop, the public enemy side of hip hop. Um, I was reading Malcolm X. I was reading, you know, uh, all these, you know, Asada Shakur's biography. I was reading all these these works that were shaping or kind of helping me to see, you know, create a worldview. And that didn't gel. You know what I'm saying? We're watching this this white dude gallivant right. around the world, you know what I'm saying? Right. Basically doing whatever the hell he wanted to do. And so while I was still interested in Bond, I guess I kind of gravitated away from that in a natural, not in a way of saying I didn't want to watch it anymore, but in a way of saying it just didn't connect with me as well as it did, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, in the years previous. So that's that kind of became my, I guess, my both my infatuation and then my disassociation to some degree. Um, and, you know, I watched all the films, though. I still watched. I, I even watched Die Another Day. I remember going to the theater and seeing Die Another Day. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably the reason why I could kind of stomach that movie a little bit more other than the fact that um, Halle Berry was in it. The other reason I could kind of stomach it was because I just wasn't as invested in Bond at that point. Okay. Um, but my investment returned, you know, a hundredfold um, once, you know, those, you know, I think it was four years passed and Daniel Craig, you know, and Casino Royale came out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I dove head, I dove head first back in. What about you? Yeah. Um, with Daniel Craig was, I agree with you. I mean, it was a complete reinvestment in James Bond um, after kind of checking out with, with Pierce Brosnan. And, uh, you know, I I came up with Roger Moore as well. And James Bond movies were really an event um, between my father and I. It was my dad that took me to see The Spy Who Loved Me in Mm. theaters. And that was my first James Bond film. And he also took me to see Moonraker. He also took me to see For Your Eyes Only. And so every Bond release became just kind of a, you know, just like a date night or date afternoon, you know, of my father. Mm-hmm. And I think that because, you know, Star Wars was out, um, to see, you know, to see a, a, a you know, a person. You mean Star you know, Wars had ended or Star Wars, you talking about because you were- Well, the Star Wars films in general, because I mean, when I saw Spy Who Loved Me and I'd already seen, it was right around the time that I'd seen, um, you know, the original Star Wars film in theaters. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. You know, right. um, when For Your Eyes Only came out, it was after Empire came out, you know, mm-hmm. and then a couple of years after For Your Eyes Only, um, Return of the Jedi came out. So I'm saying, you know, there was, there was, this, there was this, this dichotomy between these, these space fantasy, fantastical action films mm-hmm. and these, you know, real world takes place on the planet mm-hmm. superhero guy because mm-hmm. right. James Bond, he's he's MI six. He's he's a spy. He's he's travels all over the world. He he seemingly has no need for money. You know, <laughs> right. you know what I'm saying. He drives the best cars. You know, he's he's always with beautiful women. You know, and he's got these villains that are larger than life. Mm-hmm. Um, Jaws being the 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 he's he's like my top villain. He's right. like he and Ajab from the Sean. Connery era are, are, are they, they battle between my one and two slot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, I think that, um, the idea of 
being able to have access to all of these things and to be able to go to all of these places, you know, and have this, 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 this shroud of mystery really, you know, appealed to me, um, as a boy. And when Roger Moore retired, cause I, you know, of course I'd seen View to a Kill also, which I didn't enjoy as much. I mean, it was kind of like a slow decline. Right. He was like 60 um, when he did that movie too. When Timothy Dalton, uh, signed on for the role, um, I had, pretty much checked out by that point. It's like, I basically rejected Timothy Dalton mm, mm. because he couldn't, people. yeah, you know, he, because he just could, he couldn't replace Roger Moore for me. So did you see living daylights in the theater? Just out of curiosity? No, okay. no, right. I didn't that, see living I mean, daylights until much, much, much later. Okay. Cause that ranks, you know, for me, that's one of the top, that's one of my favorite Bond films. Of all right. Time. Yeah. Right. I had watched it for the second time very recently. Mm -hmm. Um, and saw how he was, how Dalton's bond was the template for Daniel Craig's bond. Right, and very close to the Fleming bond, yeah. So, but at, at any time in these 80s, you know, because it sounded like you were watching him from childhood going into your teens and then kind of fell off, but at any time in that period, did you feel like you were watching or were you conscious of the fact that this is a... This this character of this this white male character basically doing whatever he wants to to whomever he wants around the planet, especially in the Western world. Did you feel any disassociation or disconnection from that, or did you, or you know, as as a young black man, did you feel any disconnection between him and you, or did you view any of those things in that way, or did you not view it in that way? Right. Um, I felt that. I mean, there was a point where I actually wanted to be a spy. Like I wanted to like work for the CIA <laughs> right? <laughs> because I wanted to be like James Bond, mm -hmm. you know? And my dad said, <laughs> and this is, well, you've met my father. So you remember how he kind of be. <laughs> I can imagine. Right? Cause he's traveled. He, you know, my, my father traveled to many places. Your, your also. father virtually was James. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> in some, in some ways, that's a story for another podcast. But so, yeah, you know, my dad never said, James Bond. yeah, you know, my dad never said, well, no, you know, you, you, you can't be a spy because you're black. You, mm. You'll be instantly identified. He mm. said, you know, you can't be a spy because you have, you have scars on your face. Mm -hmm. Cause I had a, I have a scar on my nose mm -hmm. and I have a scar on my chin. Mm -hmm. So you're instantly identifiable because you've got discerning marks on your face. Mm -hmm. but I was like, oh, damn. But he said you can't be a spy because you're black. He said that. He never, he never, he said, never that. said that. He said because of the scar. Right, okay. right, 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 right. So the mm -hmm. irony is that you would seem that the most obvious statement would be, well, son, you can't be James Bond because, mm -hmm. you know, if you're in Europe. Ain't nothing but three, four of you that are going to be ro <laughs> right. rolling in the same circles that you would need to be rolling in, you know? <laughs> right. right. Which touches on, I think for me, for me, there's two, you, you touched on something that I think are two very strong considerations when you're talking about being, you know, I guess being any, any person of color, but in particular being young black male um, who loves a character and the character happens to be a white male who has virtually, again, nothing in common with you. Right. And, you know, we've talked about this on the show before. I think we even talked about it on our sister show on Snobs on Film about, you know, the potential for a black, you know, James Bond. And I made that point or I made the point that if you were to cast a black actor in the in the role of James Bond, there have to be changes. There would have to be implications behind that. Right. Because right. so many times Bond, whether we're talking about Connery, Lazenby, Moore, Dalton or Craig, 
so many times, <clears throat> excuse me, the access, just the access that he's given the birth, the wide birth, you know, in the Western world that he's given mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. maneuver in is because he's white and particular because he's a white man. Right. And Idris Elba is not going to be able to get those types of privileges. Um, you know, Idris Elba walks into a space somewhere in the Western world. They may look at, you know, there's going to be more eyes on him simply because he's black. You know, it's going to be harder for him to maneuver just because they're going to be like, what's this dude, you know, who is he and why is he here? You know, um, the, the access or the privileges, if you want to call them privileges, um, with the women that, that bond has enjoyed, you know, throughout his tenure, you know, Mm -hmm. um, all of these things have implications that change when you look at them through, uh, from a black point of view. And that I think is, is something that's a fundamental part of who James Bond is. And I've always argued that if you're going to cast a black actor in that role, I would hate to see that happen. And then you just have him carry on as if he, as if nothing has changed and you don't address any of these, these, these social issues. Um, now the other part of that is that the other, I think the other consideration that comes into this is that as a, not only as a, as a consumer of this art, but when you are um, aspiring to be an artist or aspiring to be whatever, a writer, musician, whatever, spe- specifically writer, um, in my own experience, you are given um, these heroes to study. You know, mm-hmm. you're giving the Hemingways, you're giving the Flemings, you're giving the whoever's, you know, these are the, you know, um, the icons. Here's the great books that you're supposed to study, the Fitzgeralds, the um, you know, name a, name, a, name a white author, name a white iconic author. And that's, they're passed on to writers and said, this is who you study. Yeah. And you're supposed to look past, you know, if there's racism involved, misogyny involved, patriarchy, right. whatever, white supremacy, you're supposed to look past all of that within the context of what you're reading and just pull out the art, which is a very difficult thing to do. And which is something that, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, um, even people in the film industry, looking back at old movies um, that you study to learn the craft, you know, and you're mm-hmm. supposed to look past the casual misogyny within these things and mm-hmm. say, oh, that was just the time and that was, it's okay because it happened back then and, you know, just ignore it. Hard to ignore when you're, when you're, a, when you're a black male or you're a woman or you're, right. or, you know, any other minority um, in the Western world. So, that comes into play, I think, at some point with Bond, because you're looking at this and it's like, listen, love this character, love these stories. But when you look at particularly some of the older Bond films um, and particularly the novels, the Fleming novels, mm-hmm. you know, you there comes a point where it becomes very difficult, you know, for you to look past the blatant, you know, racism, um, mm-hmm. the blatant nationalism, <clears throat> the blatant xenophobia, all these things mm-hmm. um, that are at the core you know are at the root of who this character is and it's hard to you know yeah james bond is 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 changed a lot in the last you know 50 years as far as the films and the books and everything else goes but when that stuff is at the core of a character some of that some of that remains with him you know what i'm saying some of that stays with him so as a you know as a teen and watching pierce you know remington Steele, as i said before become james bond um, as much as I liked GoldenEye, as much as I liked Tomorrow Never Dies, the, for me, there became that I started to feel really disassociated. Like, man, this 
this is some really white male fantasy shit. This is every white male's fantasy. You know what I'm saying? And for some of them, some parts of it is their reality. You know, there's some parts of it that is actually, you know, accessible to certain white men. But the fantasy of them being able to just go anywhere in the world, get any beautiful woman, do whatever the fuck Mm -hmm. they want as a black male becomes an irritant because it's like, yeah, you aspire to that because some of those things are, you know, even in their dimmest form are fragments of reality for you. You know, whereas I'm over here dealing with all this other shit and I can't even begin to fantasize about some of those things. Yeah. Um, That became a point of disassociation for me in dealing with with the Bond character. You know, the, the cruel irony of it that I, that I had, that I come to realize, um, when, uh, when I'd started college, which was at the, you know, the height of the Afrocentric hip hop movement. Mm-hmm. Um, Late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that, you know, we, we had our own James Bonds, you know, and Jane Bonds, mm-hmm. you know, who participated in attempting to destabilize organizations like the SCLC, Nation of Islam, the Black Panthers, mm-hmm. who uh, conspired with the Chicago Police Department to assassinate Fred Hampton. You know, um, we had those infiltrators. Right, right. You know, that did the same, you did the same things that fundamentally James was doing, had an assignment, mm-hmm. you Cold know, and ran pro. a covert operation. Right. Um, and so the that's when James Bond turned into 100% fantasy for me. Mm-hmm. You know, he was um, like, "Oh, he's one of them, <laughs> right?" Right. Because you know, James Bond is the antihero. You're really not supposed to necessarily root for him, particularly we, as a person of that? color. Well, he's not. He's not fighting for you. Mm-hmm. He's fighting for the self-interest of the British government, Her Majesty's, Her Majesty's government, right? And Western interests, mm-hmm. which usually are, are 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 focused on the destabilization of brown and yellow people Nations, right. to mm-hmm. control their resources. Right. And when you realize that, <laughs> Suddenly it's a lot easier. Not- <laughs> 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 right, right. It's a, it's a lot easier. Suddenly it's like, it's yeah, a I'm, lot easier. I'm to I say, ain't shaking. I'm shook. <laughs> right. It's a lot easier to be like, okay, well cool this is this is some this is just we're just gonna deal with this as fantasy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know you know what though i think though here's the problem though and i think this is maybe where you're going with that is that with star wars you can deal with it as fantasy because you know i got beef with star wars as representation as well we've talked about yeah, that but right you can deal with that as pure fantasy because it is a thousand percent fantasy sure. whereas with bond even though it's fantasy it's happening in the real world you know what I'm right. saying? It's like, right. so there's that, right. that difficulty in how are you not dealing with any of these nuances? Because, you know, during the, origi- the, the original Bond stories, there weren't any nuances because Fleming, there weren't any political nuances or questions about why am I doing this if it's destabilizing it? Because Fleming mm-hmm. didn't give a shit about any of that stuff. You know what I'm saying? Right. Was, Us versus them, we win, they lose. Right. And he was writing Very these. binary. He was writing these stories in a country, in Jamaica, in a country that, had, you know, his his empire had destabilized. You know, so it's like mm-hmm. that, those things mm-hmm. didn't enter mm-hmm. his mind. And so mm-hmm. then when you get into the films, you know, and going from, you know, the 60s through modern times, there's no, those nuances have not been introduced. You know, it's not like Bond ever has a moment where he's like, well, shit, should I be doing this? You know, these people, you know, this is going to have to, that doesn't happen in a Bond. You know, it's, it's the, it's the antithesis or the, yes, yeah, the, antith- the antithesis of a Lakari book. 
you know, right. um, in that regard. So for I think for you and for me, that became a kind of a I guess as we became of age, that became very apparent. That became something that could not be ignored. Um, mm-hmm. And for me in particular, I'll say, you know, to speak for me in that Brosnan era, I again, I didn't completely walk away from Bond. But I'm like you, I regarded it as, you know, I, I guess I I'd always regarded it as fantasy, but I put it in an e- even more fantastical place. Like, yeah, this is almost like watching a cartoon. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, sure. No disrespect I mean, to cartoons, but you know what I'm saying? It was like it was like watching, you know, uh, Saturday morning cartoons um, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, even even Casino Royale, where it opens, where Bond it chases down, uh, you know, a, a a bomb maker into the into the Madagascar mm. embassy and shoots up the whole embassy. Mm. Beats the hell out of a lot of brothers, right? <laughs> right. And, and 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 is captured mm. alive. Mm. In the real world, all them cats ain't gonna miss, you know. But <laughs> right. it, but if you watch, if you believe Casino Royale, it, you know basically the entire the entire security staff of the Madagascar embassy are stormtroopers who can't shoot, who can't hit anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a good one. The Star Wars analogies are great in this this conversation. But okay, so what what drew you? So that, we we did. I see this disassociation. It sounds like we kind of both had that that feeling of right. you know, disillusionment. So where how did it draw you back in like how what got you in casino royale you had gritty bond who really didn't have any highbrow backstory you know he didn't listen to anybody you know he broke into his boss's apartment mm-hmm. you know what i mean he was cocky he didn't care he had nothing to risk you know he was he, you know what I'm saying? he was he was hand-to-hand combat he was just gritty mm-hmm. and that was a different because i had not seen the dalton films Mm-hmm. But at the time, seeing that was such a stark contrast to what otherwise were glossy. Uh, are we talking about Bond films? Is it a class thing? Does, did, did Dalton's or did Craig's Bond feel, for lack of a term, better term, more like a brother to you than um, Brosnan's he, he Bond? Felt, I, I see what you mean by brother, but I mean he he was he was the underdog. He was discarded. He was. He seems he, like he seemed like he spent some time in the streets. You yeah, That's yeah. To basically to get where he right to get where he was, it it was it was like you know it was personal, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Like he I, you know get, I, he didn't get all the 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 handouts or the uh, the the access maybe that Pierce right. Is, it's Pierce like yeah, you know what? Out. I'm tired of all these eating motherfuckers <laughs> coming up. You know what I mean? I'm right. gonna get mine. I'm gonna get mine. Right. Right. It is revealed that that's he, how it, that's how it felt. Vesper, I think, says to him that I think she alludes to the fact that he's. Oxford bread or something like that but she also alludes to the fact that he you know when she meets him she sums him up and says in Casino Royale you know but you're you seem like the type who is I'm paraphrasing the course but mm-hmm. she says you know you seem like you were the type that was at Oxford but you weren't you, you weren't the rich boy at Oxford um, you didn't have all the the handouts that your classmates had and that irked you you know what I'm saying like you never mm-hmm. got over that like she she lays it out in front of him now Later in Skyfall, it does seem like he came from a privileged background, but in in um, Casino Royale, he is kind of presented as a kind of rough around the edges. You know, they call I think mm-hmm. in, in the UK private schools called public schools, so he doesn't seem like a public school kid. He seems like mm-hmm. a you know kind of around the way type cat who just you know ended up in the right place at the right time, and then he's an orphan. He got recruited by MI6, and he just. 
he feels more relatable to I think if if you ask the the majority of 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 our people of our friends who would they rather hang with they would probably say you know Craig's bond over you know Pierce's bond or Connery's bond you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. it was like or it was even like, even Moore's bond it, it, Craig gives you the what you see is what you get bond mm-hmm. and I think that is part of the reason why M trusted him. Mm-hmm. It didn't. It didn't happen overnight, but she knew that he wasn't about BS, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she knew that she needed that in order to get certain things done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his 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 bond is a much more you know. I guess in hip hop we'd call him real. Yeah, real. Exactly. I was about to say down to earth, but real. You know, he's yeah. he's he keeps it one hundred a little bit more than. You know, Kim Brosnan, for Kim example. Brosnan, for example, he's not. Mm-hmm. He enjoys, you know, Craig. Obviously, Craig's Bond obviously enjoys the finer things in life, but he's not. You know, it's not all you know martinis and you know zipping around in the Aston Martin and kind of you know living that luxury life. Even when they show his apartment, his uh, flat in a uh, Spectre, you know, he's got boxes everywhere. You know, saying it's like, it's a nice crib, but it's like a uh, homegirl comes in. And she's like, "Yo, did you just move in?" And he's mm-hmm. like, "Nah, man. he's like I've been here for a while." Forever. And she just <laughs> looks around like, "Okay," <laughs> you know. And it's that kind of keeping uh-huh. it real, that kind of vibe that you get from Craig's Bond that I think makes him more relatable to people who aren't necessarily living that lifestyle, for lack of a better term. So. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are as a person of color who doesn't come from that world, you know, again, I think you would be more find more relatable things to Craig's bond than you would to Brosnan's bond. So for me coming, I think, I, again, I think I'm, I'm kind of mirroring you or paralleling you when um, that I think is a four year gap between Die Another Day, which I regarded as, you know, pure thousand percent fantasy um, mm-hmm. and not a very great movie. But four years after that when you get Casino Royale and it's this and this is again we you know this is post um the born the born era had had had, had debuted and so we had right. a different type of spy thriller so that put pressure on Casino Royale to um to get back down to brass tacks so to speak so to get that I think for us it did or for me at least it did draw me back into the um the Bond world strongly simply because I felt more relatable to this character mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, even though he was still living white male fantasy, um, he was still white male privilege. It wasn't to the extent of, you know, again, Connery or, you know, Brosnan, because even in their, even in their approach, even more, I guess, but even in their approach to their craft of, or their, their, their duty and their job, Connery, Brosnan, more, they all seem very, uh, the the whole white male fantasy thing was right in your face. You know what I'm saying? It was like very kind of like, you know, leisurely, like, hey, you know, I'm going to go do this. And, you know, just tongue in cheek and just like mm-hmm. almost like, oh, great white man. Everything is easy for him. You know, it's like this dude is always going to come out on top. I want to see him get strapped to a chair and somebody torture his ass. And that's that's what <laughs> happened in Casino Royale. You know what I'm saying? It's like it was like you saw that and it was like, oh, wait a minute. Shit is not going right for this dude. It's like he's, you know, this this ain't this ain't Connery's bond, you know. And I think that made him a little bit more palatable for, you mm-hmm. know, people who don't come from that background. Um, and people who are never going to have that, you know, that access that he has in this in this modern in the Western world. So all those things I think 
came into play. There's another factor though for me, and I want to see how you feel about this, but there's another factor for me that made Craig a little bit, you know, more more connected um, or or tactile to me, so to speak. Um, it took him off of that, you know, big white pedestal mm-hmm. and made him more vulnerable, I guess, instead instead mm-hmm. of, you know, the invulnerability that we see in um, Connery and Moore and, and Brosnan. And that is his his emotions. You know, this was the I think that Craig is our most emotional bond. We had great emotion from Lazenby in, in uh, uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Majesty Service. Secret Service yeah. But Craig, I think, by far is our most emotional bond. And I'm not, I don't say that in, in the meaning of he has cried. You know, we've seen him cry multiple, you know, with Vesper, with uh, when M dies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm not even speaking about it. I'm just speaking in the sense that this is somebody who can be hurt, who has hurt and it, it has right. damaged him. The storylines um, become very personable. It's, yeah, it's very personal. And you see in Casino and in Quantum, you see the, the, the toll that is taken on him. And even, okay, let's, we'll get to the Vesper, but just even before Vesper, we see, um, we see him become a double O because he, he makes his, you know, his second kill. No, it's, yeah, his second kill, I think, um, when he kills mm-hmm. the guy at the beginning. But then after he has the, um, the fight with uh, my man, uh, I think his name was Ibaka, um, who he kills in the staircase. He kills a Baki and he kills his boy. Um, oh, right. Yes. When they, when they come to uh, get their money from Lashif. Um, after he kills him, he goes back up to his suite because he has to change his shirt and go back down to the card game. Um, you see him look in the mirror and he's just, he's, he's almost shaking, you know what I'm saying? Because of what he just did. You know, he just murdered somebody, mm-hmm. you know, or uh, self-defense, but let's just say murder. Murder somebody with his bare hands. Um, and that's, it, it shakes him, you know, it hits him mm-hmm. and, you know, he has mm-hmm. to get, he has to shake that off and he just, he's staring at himself and he takes a drink to like, you know, steady his nerves. So that type of emotion, we really right. haven't seen that, you know, before. Right. And then of course there's the emotion with Vesper, you know, the emotion of, of falling in love, of seeing her die right in front of him. And then in quantum seeking revenge and full, while he knows that revenge is not going to get him peace. You know, he knows it's not going to bring him peace. He seeks it anyway. And then at the end, when um, um, uh, what's her name? Oh, she's one of my favorite Bond women, and I just forgot her name. Um, Camille, Olga Karolinko's character, Camille, um, says to him, you know, after it's all said and done, she says, "You think they'll be able to rest now?" Talking about, you know, the people that they're trying to avenge. And Bond says, "You know, um, I don't think the dead care about revenge." You know, mm. so he knows that this is not really going to bring on peace, but he sighed out anyway. It was all those emotional cues. That was another thing that just brought me into this character again very strongly after kind of not putting him on the shelf, but regarding him more so as beyond Star Wars, mm-hmm. you know, to use your I think you said it. I mean, uh, the bonds that occurred in previous iterations for by and large, there there wasn't, in my view, character development at play. You never. Mm-hmm. You, when you when you saw a James Bond film in the seventies, in there in you know in the early eighties, even in the sixties, you know, it was the same Bond at the beginning of the film as he was at the end of the film. Mm, that's a good point. There very rarely was there any kind of development, except uh, you for know, maybe Majesties, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, when the mission was over, it would, you know, the epilogue was always he's, you know, he's making out with the with the lead <laughs> female character, and then they get caught because the company's calling. You know what I'm saying? All right. 
but in the Craig, but in the Craig films, that's that isn't that isn't the case. Mm-hmm. That isn't the case. You know, he is affected by what he's doing, and and over the course of these films, you see it take its toll. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. I think for me, he's still. He's still, you know, a great white man. He's still going to, you know, take on, you know, an entire army or whatever by himself, you know, so to speak, you know, right. and especially Inspector. We saw that, which was ridiculous. But anyway, you know, he's still that dude who is exalted um, and kind of, you know, fits into the same mold of all these this long line of white male heroes that we as the public have been told, you know, are the pinnacle. You know, they are mm-hmm. the great, you know, they are, they are the, they are the gods, you know, so, so worship them. Um, and so, yeah, I think he still is that, but in the same degree, to your point, the emotion, the vulnerability, the character arcs, um, mm-hmm. all of these things I think came into play and have made him much more palatable to us, you know, to people who don't look like him, um, who don't enjoy the same privilege at least we can, you know, connect a little bit more to him on certain levels than I could with previous bonds. Um, so I, I think that the other thing is that, you know, we can't ignore the fact that, you know, he also exists in a much more PC world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I just saw an image online, man. It was like, you know, t- it was a still, I think, taken from <clears throat> one of the uh, the recent trailers and it's in it's in M's office. So the camera is right behind M. So we see the back of M's head and then standing in front of him are uh, Money, Pen- Money Penny, who was played by um, uh, my girl, Naomi Harris. Then um, Lashana Lynch's character, uh, Nomi mm-hmm. is there. And then Q, uh, Ben Wishaw's mm-hmm. character is there. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, wow, what would um, Bernard Lee play the first M? What would he think? Yeah. If somebody told him, yo, in the future, there's going to be two black women and a homosexual man standing in your standing in your office. He would, you know, right. he'd be like he probably would spit right. out his scotch or whatever the hell he was drinking. So. Right. Or be like, well, look, I'll keep the secretary. <laughs> right. I'll keep money. Penny. <laughs> money Penny can be black. Yeah, she's a black. Never be a That's black a or a gay agent. That'll never happen. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah. We ain't having that. So I feel that you know this bond obviously exists in this you know much more pc world so whether or not Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. these um you know i don't want to call them uh uh representations for lack of a better term whatever not whether or not they actually reflect um the progress that we all think that they reflect in the real world on screen you know there's been a lot of you know obvious different representation going on than what was going on back in the 60s so there's that that's you know our craig exists our our bond exists in that world um but yet he's still you know the the themes and everything to your point um there's a lot still going on that my i guess preteen or teenage self would still point to and say yeah that's you know that's that's some bullshit you know that's that's that white man shit that i can't get with and i can't connect to um but i i think that we as adult men have been drawn in by some of the stuff that Craig goes through, I guess, as a, as a, as an adult male, the vulnerabilities again, those emotions, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, that he's not just gallivanting around, you know, whimsic, whimsically doing whatever the hell he wants. Mm-hmm. Or issues of duty, honor, uh, just doing stuff. Yeah. All those, all those, all those man type things that, you know, we all like, you know what I'm saying? That yeah, we all right. stand up and like connect to, yeah. Duty, honor, all that stuff. So. Well, yeah. let me ask. So, you know, do you feel, 
like the hypocrisy question, right? It's like, you know, you feel an inherent conflict uh, rooting, you know, for white heroes. Now, you know, mm-hmm. for example, you're a big Thor fan. <laughs> right? Tell me about and Daredevil, a, too. <laughs> and you're a big, I was going to say, and you're a big Daredevil fan, you know. Is the, is the idea, like, you know, I love Peter Parker, I love Tony Stark. It's like, it, it, because these, these examples are comic book characters, mm-hmm. does that abstract the affinity for them in a way that Bond feels more visceral? Mm-hmm. I think, let me. I think those are two good examples. So let me let me take a look at both of those very quickly. Thor, I think it is extremely fantastical, and mm-hmm. I've always had an interest in mythologies of not just Greek mythology, Norse mythology. I've even looked into you know, even though it's harder to get a hold of, into the quote unquote mythology of African nations um, and, yeah. and peoples, um, and you know. Uh, quote unquote Native American, the indigenous people of this continent, and the, you know the 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 um I don't think gods is the right way to to, to uh, phrase it, but the beliefs and uh, there of that culture and just all these type of you know larger than life things um, and storytelling and legends and tales have always been of interest to me. So mm-hmm. I read fantasy, you know, as a young kid. I read Conan. Mm-hmm. I read you know John Carter from Mars. I read. Um, Michael Moorcock and Elric, you know, those are my, those, those were the things that drew me into that world. And Thor became a part of that in the comics, um, especially with the Walter Simonson run in the eighties. So it was so fantastical that it drew me, it never made me feel like, Ooh, there's this huge contrast in me having this interest in this blonde haired blue eyed God, you know, Mm -hmm. that's that's exactly what Thor was. Right. Um, Right. Was this blonde haired blue eyed God. Mm -hmm. So I never really felt that because it was, it was extraordinarily fantastical. Like I didn't relate it to the real world at all. You know, even Mm -hmm. some of the themes though, especially in the Walter Simonson run were very real world, you know, as far as father and sons, things, duty, all those things you just mentioned a minute ago. Yeah. Um, Now with Daredevil, what's interesting about that is I would put him, in the same places, you know, the reason for my connect- connection to him was probably everything we just talked about with Daniel Craig's Bond. Daredevil was always beaten down. He came from he was he came he was he came from an impoverished background. Um, mm-hmm. He you know he was not the hero. He was never supposed to be a hero. You know what I'm saying? So, as a person of color, whether or not you come from an impoverished background or not, you can kind of connect to someone who is the underdog. You know, right. and it's like right, right, Daredevil right, right. was that in the sense of not just being a heroic underdog. He wasn't even supposed to be a hero that he was blind. You know, his father was murdered. You know, it was like he mm-hmm. his mother left. You know, it was like all this shit that happened. This like this dude is like you can connect to him on a very visceral level. So that those two things never really, you know, stuck out to me as being any, you know, feeling any sort of hypocrisy. I mm-hmm. think, again, for me, man, it was really in my early to mid teens, just not just with Bond, but with all these, you know, because the eighties were full of the early eighties and mid eighties, even the late eighties were full of those, you know, oh great white men, you know, heroes from Stallone to Schwarzenegger, um, all those action films. Um, I think that's one of the reasons I love Die Hard so much was because here was here was a white man who clearly was not oh great white man. He was like this cat was like barely getting out with the skin of his teeth and he was scared he was scared throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um but most of these films, yeah, were presenting these characters that were presented to us as, you know, infallible and virtually indestructible. Um and so by the time I got to my late teens, my interest in them kind of 
if it didn't wane, it definitely became much more um, circumspect and much more, mm-hmm. you know, kind of looking at him with the side eye, like, yeah, I made this movie was cool, but you know, fuck this dude. You know what I'm saying? It was like, it was like mm-hmm. that. It had that kind of vibe to it. Um, but what about you? I mean, did you feel, did you feel any of that, that hypocrisy or did you kind of step away? Like I did completely from all these things. You weren't into the um, comics though, like that. So you didn't have, those. no, I wasn't in the comics like that. I like, I would jump in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, you know, I would make the, I would make them black. And what I mean by that is like Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Man to me was always what Miles Morales Mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. most of my elementary school years you know were spent at you know a small school in a California suburb where I was one but of a few black students right you know so there was always this inherent outsider perspective that I you know that I felt even with you know even with the friends that I had you know you hook up with you know people with common interests and such you know mm-hmm. and then going into junior high you know we had moved from the suburbs, you know, into Oakland mm-hmm. and, you know, it's like you deep end into culture. I, you know, I never dressed right. You know, <laughs> right my hair right. wasn't right. You like were nothing outside. was You're right. Still with the outsider, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's a whole nother side of being an outsider, mm-hmm. you know, to this. So, you know, so I related to a character like Peter Parker mm-hmm. who found himself because of uh, of an incident with a radioactive spider aligned with the tra- a personal tragedy that he felt responsible for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, putting him in a role that he couldn't talk about. Mm, right, right. You know? I get that, I, yeah. I, I had found, you know, ways to, to relate to that. So I didn't, you know, so the color of his skin didn't, didn't affect me in that, you know, in, in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because I made friendships with people that look just like him. Right. I, I think they also, and just add this before we, before we wrap it up, I think that part of living in a culture dominated by European thought, you know, European culture, is that they can exist in a fantasy world, whereas we feel once, you, once we step into that fantasy world, there are realities that have to be dealt with. You know, I, right. I feel that you know, we had an episode of this show where we talked about, okay, now that we know Jeffrey Wright has been cast as Commissioner Gordon in the next mm-hmm. Batman film, mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. they going to bring in, you know, some of these elements that we could see a black commissioner having to deal with right. you know, of Gotham City? And by that, by saying that, what we're doing is we're saying, well, yeah, this Batman shit is fantasy and, you know, this rich dude dressing up as a, as a bat and, you know, uh, turning himself into a ninja and all this stuff, we can accept all mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But if you put a black man as commissioner, he better be addressing, you know, what's going on in the south side of Gotham. So right. we're all we're like bringing that reality into the fantasy. And I think that as I think that's a function as, you know, being a person of color, living in a culture dominated by European um, culture. I think that we can't really fix our minds to the fact that, oh, yeah, we can just live in this, you know, fantastical shit and just do ignore all these realities Mm-hmm. Um, of, of of this culture, I, I don't think that we can do that. And I don't think we should do that. You know, I think that for me, storytelling, unless you're talking about a Star Wars, where you know, we, we, when you're talking about Star Wars, I still think we why why aren't there more brothers around here? It's always going to be my question with Star Wars, mm-hmm. brothers and sisters. But when you're talking about fantasy in the terms of a James Bond, um, I still feel like yeah, 
it's it makes it better when you bring in some of these you have him if, especially if you had a, a black James Bond that right. he has to deal with you know certain things or if it's a black 007 if Nomi you know the ne- in No Time mm-hmm. to Die yeah, you know gives voice to the fact of what she has to go through or what her thoughts or what her obstacles or what her you know uh, to even get to that place to get to that place and what she yeah. you know just, just the different perspectives you know different point of view mm-hmm. I think that's really important so listen before we wrap this up I do want to say that I think it will be interesting to see because I think we both have said, you know, how, you know, we connected back with Bond strongly in the Craig era. It's going to be interesting to see after Craig era, after No Time to Die, what they're going, you know, what the tone of that is going to be. Are they going mm-hmm. to maintain this emotional thing? Are they going to bring in some of these realities that we're talking about? Or are they going to stay strictly fantasy? You know, Bond doesn't deal with, you know, these socio-political things, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. Maybe that's a show for another day, but that'll be that'll be interesting to see. All right, so we're gonna cap this one off. Um, this was episode. Gosh, I could say episode two, right? But this is our second installment of Mad Unreal Double O Seven and Counting. We'll be back with yeah. the third installment in a week, and I believe we start reviewing uh, Casino Royale. We start counting down the movies, we right? Start counting down the Craig Air movies, and you know we have to do it, you know, in the Mad Unreal way. So it's going to be a little bit different than the average review, but um. It's going to be fun. We're going to count down all four of the existing Craig films leading up Mm -hmm. to No Time to Die. First one is going to be Casino Royale, which we've talked about a lot during this episode. Um, If you have not seen Casino Royale, watch it. Go watch it after you listen to this, after you've listened to all your Mad on Real episodes. Watch Casino Royale. If you haven't seen it in a long time, watch it again um, because we're going to dive into it and give it the Mad on Real review uh, next week. And even uh, hit you know hit us up on Twitter, hashtag Mad Unreal. Hashtag Mad Unreal. Um, we can start talking about Casino Royale. That when we record, we can get into uh, a couple of a uh, couple questions, couple comments from uh, from our followers. Cool. All right, it's been fun. Um, see you guys next week. Peace.